This program is brought to you by the members and donors to the show, like me, Ronald, from Baltimore, Maryland, also known as Ronald Bruce Meyer, and sometimes known as John Mill. I write and voice a blog called freethoughtalmanac.com, and I'm a member of one of the few surviving unions in the USA. For details on how to support this show, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Moyers and Company, Counterspin, The David Pakman Show, All In with Chris Hayes, The Young Turks, and The Black Agenda Report. And just remember that July 14th is Bastille Day, and although I'm not recommending anything, the French Revolution was brought about 225 years ago in response to people just like those who bring you income inequality and plutocracy in America today. In our day, certain economic proofs have become accepted as self-evident. A second Bill of Rights under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station or race or creed. Among these are the right to a useful and remunerative job, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation, the right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a return which will give him and his family a decent living. The right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom, freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad. The right of every family to a decent home. The right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. The right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment, the right to a good education. All of these rights spell security. And after this war is won, we must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. For unless there is security here at home, there cannot be lasting peace in the world. If you're still reeling from the Supreme Court's McCutcheon decision, giving corporations and oligarchs even more power to corrupt democracy with impunity, and if the greatest income inequality since the first Gilded Age and the Roaring Twenties has you gasping at the realization that it's happening in America again, and if you have trouble reconciling the promise of America, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for every citizen with the facts of America, including the fact of immense power and privilege in the hands of so few, if all these bad tidings have you down in the dumps, 
I have an assignment for you. Read this book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great by Harvey J.K., published this very week on the 69th anniversary of President Franklin Roosevelt's death, the 12th of April, 1945. At its core is the famous speech FDR made to America less than a year before Pearl Harbor in 1941, calling on the nation to prepare to protect and defend the four essential freedoms, freedom of speech and religion, and freedom from want and fear. It's not the first time this historian has reached into the past to find inspiration for our troubled present. His book, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, was a rousing invocation of the radical patriot who became the conscience of the American Revolution. Harvey J.K. joins me now. He's a professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, and director of that school's Center for History and Social Change. Harvey, welcome back. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You opened fire in the very first sentence, we must remember, and then over and again, we must remember, we must remember, we must remember. What exactly are you asking us to remember? We need to remember what our parents and grandparents did. We need to remember that they didn't just beat the Great Depression. They didn't just defeat fascism and imperialism. What they actually did is to go about doing that, inspired by FDR's words, they made America freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. And aren't we living in their long shadow? Long, long shadow. <laughs> Absolutely. Look around America today. So much of what we benefit from, of what we enjoy, which is under siege, we owe to that generation. What it comes down to is that we've seen that the four freedoms as they're embodied in social security, the rights of labor, in the advances for women's equality and rights in the 60s. I mean, I, I love to tell my students, all the things that were accomplished in the 30s and all the things that were accomplished in the 60s, and you can go one by one and it's an arc. It's an arc, a fulfillment, okay? Roosevelt actually on the campaign trail was very revealing. I think most historians underestimate just how progressive he was on the campaign trail. There were no surprises. He didn't come in unaware of what he was going to do. And when he takes office and he begins this hundred days and he goes on, first New Deal, second New Deal, he is constantly inviting Americans, not just to take up the labors of the New Deal, but essentially to get organized. One of the lines that very few people come across, but it's the line something like, laws in themselves do not create the new millennium. And what he meant by that is, of course, that we can pass laws, but you're going to have to fight. This fight is not only mine, it's ours. And he was a fighter. He took on the oligarchs. He didn't mince words. He warned against the economic autocracy. He said a new despotism had arisen, an industrial dictatorship. He called them economic royalists. He denounced, quote, those few selfish citizens who would clip the wings of the American eagle in order to feather their own nest. I mean, no presidents talk like that since Roosevelt. Absolutely not. I mean, I have my students read through inaugural addresses, State of the Union addresses, and I, I start them off with, you know, the 1936 Roosevelt, one speech where he talks about economic royalists. And he's, you know, basically he's saying, they complain that we're out to, you know, overturn American institutions. But what they're really complaining about is we want to overturn their power. And guess what? They're right. <laughs> now, one president other than FDR would have said that. That's magnificent. I mean, it's the kind of thing you just listen to over and over again. And then he goes off to say, 
I welcome their hatred. Yeah, he was a tough fighter against the economic royalists, against yeah. the uh, aristocracy right. of, of, of wealth. And he came from that part of the country. And I was taken, although I've read this before, I think you said it so concisely, mm. that, that as a young man growing up, he wasn't particularly sensitive to the poor or sensitive to minorities or sensitive to the marginalized, but that as a victim of polio, he came to possess this great empathy. His labor secretary in her memoir of Roosevelt talks... Francis Perkins. Francis Perkins, thank you. She says, knowing him early on, around 1912, and knowing him later, after he's stricken with polio, it was a changed man, a man filled with a new kind of sensitivity and a sensibility. I also think that Eleanor plays a really fundamental role yeah. during the 1920s in introducing him to the women that she's meeting down here in New York City, labor organizers and others, and he's all of a sudden coming to grips with the struggles of working people in the cities. And I think that registered it in him. Why was the Four Freedom Speech so important? I think the Four Freedom Speech is important in the most immediate sense of 1941, and that's really the call to war. Americans know what's coming. The call to war is, we need to create an arsenal for democracy. We need to create a Lend-Lease program to secure Britain and its allies against Nazi Germany. And then he says, but don't misunderstand. We have to appreciate that if we're going to prepare ourselves for defense, that we don't give up what we've achieved these last eight years. And he lays out new initiatives. What he knew, and what he knew a generation knew, was the only way to defend, secure, and sustain American democracy is you constantly press to enhance it. You test the limits. We're the great experiment in democracy, and he knew that. He knew American history. So here he appears, and how does he close this speech? The four freedoms. And he actually says that these four freedoms are at the heart of American life. They're at the heart of this ongoing, perpetual, and peaceful revolution dating back to the time of the revolution. I, I had to shake my head when I came to that moment in your book when you say that when Roosevelt delivering the speech got to freedom, <laughs> freedom from war, <laughs> no Republicans applauded, and at least some Democrats right. didn't right. applaud. I think that shook up the Republicans. Samuel Grafton, the, New York, the then liberal New York Post columnist, said they sat in their hands. And then he got to freedom from fear, and that was when he said it. And I think the Demo a good number of Democrats, and you know who those were. They were the white supremacist Democrats. In yes, the because South. he was talking about freedom from persecution and right. discrimination. Right, exactly. And exactly. that's when this, the Dixiecrats yeah. would have sat on their hands, yes. Democrats. Right. You know what's interesting, Bill, is if you read the exact wording of the speech and his idea of the four freedoms, Roosevelt states them in a way that might not have been so scary to the well-off. But Americans knew that he was talking to them. And when they heard freedom from want and freedom from fear, they had absolutely no doubt what he had in mind. I remember you're quoting something that FDR said to a friend of his, I think in 1930. 1930. What right. was it? He said to a friend, looking all around him with the devastation of the Great Depression, I think it's time that we make America fairly radical for a generation. Fairly radical? Fairly radical. What do you think he meant by that? I think he meant that it was time to free ourselves of the conservative shackles of the 1920s. That it was time to enable working people to organize. It was time to provide old age pensions. We needed to create public works projects. We needed to address the environment, soil erosion. Agriculture was fundamental to Franklin Roosevelt. 
over and over again out on the campaign trail that year. Contrary to what historians seem to, to say, Roosevelt was saying, we need to do these things. That's what he meant by radical. But he didn't mean merely that he would do it or the Democrats in Congress would do it. As we saw in the coming years, he meant we will make America fairly radical for a generation. You know, Roosevelt in many ways, I have a feeling this goes back to his, back to his reading of Jefferson. Jefferson said, in every generation, Americans need a bit of rebellion. And I think Roosevelt understood that. You know, in 1938, just before the congressional midterm elections, he did a speech on the radio. And Roosevelt said, you know, if we don't keep pushing forward, Tory republicanism will. And if Tory republicanism does, then communism and fascism have greater chance of taking root in this country. You know, in 1926, it's not even a depression. His greatest worry was that if America didn't escape the conservative hole that it was in, that he worried for the nation's future. I think there's a trajectory in Roosevelt that's astounding, and I think historians ignore it. In 1932, he talked about an economic declaration of rights. In 1941, he proclaims the four freedoms. In 1944, he calls for a second Bill of Rights, specifically an economic Bill of Rights. There's a tremendous continuity in his thought. He's just articulating it more clearly. So if he were not calling for a revolution, what was he calling for? I think he knew that certain ills and injustices needed to be addressed. At one point, he says, real patriotism requires us to make an America where more of us get to share in what this country is about. And he said, real patriotism is about combating the evils and injustices. Now, he did that at a World War I memorial. He didn't try to rally people into some kind of military fever. He knew. He had a, but he had this incredible confidence in his fellow citizens. He believed that if you could empower working people, if you could afford the necessities to people, that if you could do these things, you create a better America. He knew that this country was a grand experiment in democracy. And Going we all have, the way back to 1770. All the way back. You know, Bill, you and I have this affection for Thomas Paine, and I can tell you one of the reasons I wrote this is that it was Franklin Roosevelt who was the first president since Thomas Jefferson who, while in office, openly quoted and cited Thomas Paine's name. But you know that conservatives claim Thomas Paine, too. You do know that. I know that and, all and too the, well. And the Tea Party did not come from the left. It came from ordinary people out there on the conservative side of things. Okay. There's I have a paradox here. I have a theory. <laughs> I have a theory. Historians are not supposed to have theories. I know. I know. Have facts. Well, I have a theory. I believe Reagan could never have become president if we, if Democrats, progressives, and liberals had not already forgotten and forsaken the four freedoms. The only thing that enables conservatives to appeal to the vast majority of American working people is when that vast majority is disappointed and frustrated and angry. You're right. We have been led to forget. And who has led us to forget? So over and over again, we saw from right through the 30s, right through World War II, we saw corporate interests constantly trying to either directly suppress the, the ideas that are going to become the four freedoms, okay, by saying private enterprise, that's what makes America great. Uh, forgetting the struggle for freedom's speech, expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want and freedom from fear that Roosevelt put into words. For example, Ronald Reagan, 
If you look closely at what Reagan does in the course of his presidency, he appears on uh, July 3rd, 1987, at the Jefferson Memorial at an event sponsored by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And he says that he wants to advance for freedoms. He says, you know, we Americans need to cultivate, we need to remember, he says we need to remember. And we need to teach our children history and make sure they remember. America is about freedom. And what does he say? Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom of enterprise. He literally expunges freedom from want and freedom from fear. Did you write this book to make people fight mad? Because they're going to be fighting mad on either side of the political spectrum when they read it. Yes, absolutely. I want them to be fighting mad. I want them to be fighting mad like Roosevelt was. I want them to say, we need to make America fairly radical for a generation. What we need to do is we need to go back and remember the kinds of things that Roosevelt knew, that there's deep in every American this desire to redeem the meaning of America. And he knew that there are ways of getting people to act because if you can speak to them as an American, remind them of who they are, invite them to, to offer their labors, invite them to organize. In the 1930s, I mean, organizers went out and said, you've got to organize. The president wants you in a union. It worked. Millions joined. And by the way, living standards rose, worker security improved, we get social security. I mean, Look what we've done, and look what we're allowing to happen now. This cannot be the America that I imagined and most of my fellow Americans imagine. But they have forgotten, not the four freedoms as ideals, they have forgotten what it takes to realize them, that we must defend, sustain, and secure democracy by enhancing it. That's what Roosevelt knew. That's what Jefferson knew. And no one seems to remember that today. That's what we have to remind people of. Obama has decided to talk less about income inequality and more about opportunity, a framework conservatives favor. That's worth reporting, but don't buy the line of outlets like the New York Times that the shift is something the public wants. Reporter Jackie Combs explained on February 4th that Republicans think talking about inequality smacks of class warfare and suggested that the public agrees, quote, on this question, the president and his party have moved in Republicans and voters direction, close quote. The Times cites a Pew poll it says shows a broad consensus that government should help people escape poverty, but substantially less agreement that government should act to reduce the gap between the rich and everyone else. 
But what the poll actually found is that 69% of the public thinks the government should do some or a lot to reduce inequality. That reference to substantially less support is in contrast with public support for government action to reduce poverty, which gets 82% support. So the Times is citing a poll that shows widespread support for government action to reduce inequality to make the argument that the public wants the government to do less to reduce inequality. The paper also ignores other sources like the ABC Washington Post poll that found 57% in support of government policy to reduce the gap between wealthy and less well-off Americans, or the Gallup poll that found 57% calling for the redistribution of wealth by heavy taxes on the rich. As Calms notes, the language matters because it affects what government might do. That's why Fair called on readers to tell the Times to stop presenting this shift as one the public wants, when there's plenty of evidence of the opposite. I said if I was smart that I would save up for a piece of string and a rock to wind string around. Everybody wants a rock to wind a piece of string around. Everybody wants a rock to wind a piece of string around. Throw the crib door wide Let the people crawl inside Someone in this town Is trying to burn the playhouse down They want to stop the ones who want to rock to wind a string around But everybody wants to rock to wind a piece of string around There's one issue that when they are asked about it fairly in an honest way Republicans and Democrats almost unanimously agree with. And we've talked about how there is more and more consensus on marriage equality, for example. More than half of all Americans now believe that gay and lesbian couples should have at least, at minimum, the same rights as heterosexual married couples, regardless of whether it's called marriage or not. It's at least a move in the right direction. More consensus on abortion for the first time since the survey started more than half of Americans believe that abortion should be a legal medical procedure to which women have access. Even more when you ask people, forgetting about these, these names like socialist or government health care, when you just say to people, should the government provide some basic level of health care for people who live here, more than two-thirds say yes. However, these are not the issues that I am talking about. I am talking about the issue of inequality where 91% of Republicans and 93% of Democrats think that we have too much wealth and income inequality in this country and actually want over the wealth distribution of the US today the wealth distribution of Sweden this is amazing now you might be saying hold on a second David there was a Gallup poll done last month and it found that only 54% of Republicans think that we have too much inequality. You would be right. The poll was bogus. The poll did not, the poll was tainted by what we know is an incredibly skewed perception of what income distribution actually is. Remember, Lewis, we talked about a study where people were asked, draw, dividing up into quintiles, what you think the income distribution is right now in the country and what you think it should be. 
And incredibly, people don't realize how unequal the income distribution is in this country. So what this other study did is it asked people, it was done by Dan Ariely, by the way, of Duke University, and it found that if you show people here is the income and wealth distribution of Sweden and here is the one for the United States, they weren't labeled as such, which do you prefer? 91% of Republicans and 93% of Democrats favor the less unequal Swedish income distribution. Almost no difference at all between Republicans and Democrats. And this is very telling for two reasons. Number one, it confirms how significant of an issue income inequality is and how important it is to people. But number two, it shows us that when we remove our thinking from the two-party system and just give nonpartisan options, you see that once again, the progressive view happens to be the most popular one. Right. And if you ask me, this is just a common sense issue. And the funny thing is, if you do throw back in the, the two-party system and ask uh, a Republican if they would favor uh, the Swedish wealth distribution they system would say, of in this country, not. No, they, they'd call you. They, they'd say you're a socialist, you're a communist, <laughs> you're, you're you're a fascist, uh, one-world government, blah blah blah. That's what they'd say. Now, politicians don't really want to have their constituents know what the actual income distribution is. Politicians are elected in great part, well, number one, many of them are millionaires or even a hundred millionaires, and they profit handsomely from a system in which this level of inequality is an important piece. Why on earth would our elected officials want to tell us how unequal things actually are? And uh, th this is a very interesting study, and it just confirms much of what we've been thinking for years. Wealth, this is according to Oxfam, of the world's 85 richest people is equal to the three and a half billion poorest people. It's fantastic. And this is a great thing because it inspires everybody, gets the motivation to look up to the 1% and say, I want to become one of those people. I'm going to fight hard to get up to the top. This is fantastic news, and of course I applaud it. What can be wrong with this? Really? Inequality is at the front and center of the American political conversation these days, due in no small part to the fact that income inequality is the highest it's been since the Great Depression. Low-wage workers are increasingly mobilized, and the president is signaling his own focus on the issue. I have always found something frustratingly inert and vague about the word inequality. It seems abstract. Because the issue isn't even so much inequality of income or wealth, though that's extremely important. It's inequality of accountability. Take, for example, this.
We're just getting numbers now on Jamie Dimon's compensation as chairman and CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase for the full year of 2013. He will get a $20 million compensation package. It might surprise the public to see that his compensation nearly doubled from full year 2012. Yeah, you think? Think that might surprise the public? Jamie Morgan has, under Dimon's leadership, in the past few years agreed to settlements totaling more than $29 billion dollars in order to settle investigations into a variety of large and destructive alleged misdeeds, from criminal and civil allegations that failed to stop Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme to probes into its mortgage bond sales and inquiries into botched derivatives bets, energy market manipulation, and credit monitoring products. The Justice Department has very ostentatiously not left them off the hook for criminal liability, and yet, no matter the level of scandal, misbehavior, or possible criminal activity, the board has decided that Mr. Diamond deserves a raise. This when the median income for American workers has been falling. Or look at the case of Neil Kashkari. He was the former Goldman banker, tapped by former Goldman CEO Henry Paulson, to oversee the $700 billion handed over to the banks to save them from their own recklessness. Who then went on to work for the big California bond fund PIMCO, which indirectly benefited financially from the same TARP program that Kashkari oversaw. He surfaced from private life to write an op-ed decrying the me-first attitude in America. Not of the bankers who had ground millions of people's lives to dust, but rather the greedy moochers sucking off the government teat. Quote, cutting entitlement spending requires us to think beyond what is in our own immediate self-interest. If we don't focus on our collective good, all of us will suffer. Well, that same Kashkari, who did a terrible job in enforcing the promises made to taxpayers and legislators about TARP, is now launching his candidacy as a Republican to be governor of the great state of California. Who knows? Maybe he'll be able to get Diamond to spare some of that $20 million to write him a check. Meanwhile... And just pulled the rug out from underneath us, and there's nothing left. It's not correct. No, it keeps a roof over your head. The electric on, the water on. Rent, bills, day-to-day -day living, travel costs, food, everything. How do I feed my four children? How do I feed the dogs, the, the, my husband, my, everything? And it, it's so overwhelming that you don't know where to start. Seems to be the impression that the people in unemployment benefits are just kind of sitting around enjoying the money and nothing could be farther from the truth. Long-term unemployment in America is as high as it's ever been since World War II, with about 4 million people who've been out of work for 27 weeks or more. And as you can see from this chart, what caused that trend was the financial crisis. That's it. Full stop. Either that or a strange national epidemic of laziness that just happened to start at the very same moment Wall Street almost went bankrupt. And yet today, like every week, tens of thousands of those people had their emergency unemployment insurance run out because Republicans in Congress refused to extend it. And they joined the 1.3 million who lost their benefits starting December 28th. They are now scrambling to make do to feed their families or avoid foreclosure or eviction to keep a roof over their head somehow, some way. So, when we say inequality, this is what we're talking about. Not charts and graphs, we are talking about justice and fairness and basic human decency. We are talking about a society, indeed a world, in which billions of people get up every day and say, as Kevin O'Leary would have them say, I want to work hard and be successful and make money and do right by my family. And what they get for their efforts is a merciless pummeling by the forces of power and money into submission and poverty. And when it's done and they are broken and they are trying to figure out where their next meal will come from, they are told to stop being so greedy. They are told it is their fault.
Don't you dare to speak of the commonwealth To become every man for himself Rich and poor, void in between Raise a wire, gay communities The wealthiest anomalies With their own privatized police While the silent majority States for the best, obey the corporate American dream. Here in America, we're used to being number one. Number one richest country, number one middle class. Well, unfortunately, it looks like those days might be over. Really interesting story out of the New York Times. We've got a new. Um, portion of the Times called The Upshot, that's a website covering policy and politics, and they uh, actually work with the Luxembourg Income Study Database to put these numbers together and to show you who is the new number one in median wages, middle class, etc., and how we've been doing over the last 35 years. First of all, we uh, 35 years ago, we're doing great. We were actually number one in terms of both median income and the middle class by a long shot. And we've been in a steady decline since, especially compared to other countries. And right now, when Americans are asked, about 30% of people in America believe that the country is headed in the right direction. So that's obviously a very bad number, because the overwhelming majority think that we're headed in the wrong direction. Well, it turns out that gut feeling that they have is totally right. So now let me quote the New York Times for the results of the study. While the wealthiest Americans are outpacing many of their global peers, a New York Times analysis shows that across the lower and middle income tiers, citizens of other advanced countries have received considerably larger raises over the last three decades. Now this is something that we've been telling you about on the Young Turks for a long time. And we've shown you charts along these lines before. The productivity of the American worker did not go down. It actually went up significantly. But the gains from that productivity did not go to the great majority of us. It went to the top 1% and to the corporations who took most of those gains. We'll take, tell you more about those facts in a second. Now, they continue to explain how we're doing compared to other countries. Middle class incomes in Canada, substantially behind in 2000, now appear to be higher than in the United States. So when you talk about middle class, we have a new champion. It's Canada. It's not the U.S. anymore. Now, median income in Canada pulled into a tie with the median United States income in 2010 and has most likely surpassed it since then. Now, that's a different number. And understand that because that's really important. One thing is how the middle class is doing, the number of people that are in the middle of the income brackets, right? This is not the average salary that we get here in the U.S. or the average income that we get because the average is still pretty high because our top salaries, our top income is so gargantuanly high and so much higher than almost any other country because we have great income inequality in this country that, does, that is not reflected in the median income. So the median income is not just taking all the salaries and then dividing by the number of people here in the U.S. It shows you the income where 50% of Americans are below that number and 50% of Americans are above that number, right? So it's basically the middle of the number of people that are getting that salary. Okay, so when you look at that, com comparing Canada and America, the median income, Canada now beats us, meaning that there are more people in Canada that are wealthier than in the U.S. Now, the very wealthy here in the U.S. do substantially better, but for the rest of us, 
Canada now, on average, does better. Oops. It doesn't quite have the same ring. We're number two! The guys above us are actually literally above us. <laughs> They're right there. They're our neighbors. They're not that different. But they beat us. Why? Because they have different policies. We'll get to that in a second. Now, first of all, that's the middle class and the median uh, income. How about the poor? The poor and... Oh, by the way, before I get to that, let me actually show you a chart here because this is important. It shows you the lead that the U.S. had in all these different countries and uh, now how those countries have caught up. As you see on the far left there, Canada has caught us and is now surpassing us. Uh, but all of those countries have had huge jumps. Uh, not every one of them has caught us, but everyone is coming very close to us while in the last especially 12 years, 14 years, we have stagnated. Okay, And our rate of growth is nowhere near them. In fact, we're not even growing anymore. I'll get to that in a second as well. Now let's go to the poor. Uh, the poor in much of Europe earn more than poor Americans. So, hmm, if the poor are doing better elsewhere and the middle class is doing better elsewhere, what are we really doing well in? Oh, right, the very, very, very top. The elites in America are super elites. Boy, that makes all of us feel good, doesn't it? Now, of course, the idea was that's okay, guys. We're not envious of that because of trickle-down economics. So those guys will get the money, but it will trickle down to you guys, to the middle class to the, and the poor, and you'll do better. Except that's not what happened. It did not trickle down. They just held it. Turns out that was just a lie to excuse them getting lower taxes and getting a bigger percentage of the money. More facts. A family at the 20th percentile of the income distribution in this country makes significantly less money than a similar fa family in Canada, Sweden, Norway, Finland, or the Netherlands. Now, a lot of those are what uh, conservatives in this country would call, ah, socialist countries, we don't want to be like Europe. Well, maybe our top 1% doesn't want to be like Europe, but the other 99% of us wouldn't mind, especially if you're in the bottom brackets. They treat you far more humanely over there. Now, remember that 35 years ago, as the New York Times points out, the reverse was true. So not only did our rich do better back then, but our poor did better, our middle class did better. And this is really important, because this is what I emphasize all the time on the show. In 1976, the Supreme Court says money is speech. In 1978, in Bellotti decision, they say that corporations have the right, a constitutional right, to spend money in politics. In 1980, Ronald Reagan is uh, elected, and all these charts change right between 1978 and 1980. In fact, 35 years ago was 1979. Up until that point, we had about 40 years where the American worker had great productivity and great returns. When we actually worked for that money, we got that money. But they changed the rules in the late 1970s and in 1980. And then what happened was, from then on, you didn't get your productivity. They got your productivity. They got the fruits of your labor. So uh, as you see with median per capita income, now again, this is the most important number because it shows you uh, where we are um, relative to other countries, not the average, because our rich skew the average, but the median of where the country is. Since 2000, the US is pretty much unchanged. Uh, how about Britain? Well, they're up 20%. Netherlands, up 14%. Canada, up 20%. So it was bad from, you know, basically 1979 to 2000. But since 2000, it's gotten even worse 
because we're not even going up at all anymore for median income. So we're the, basically the median income of the country going nowhere. So if you thought we're on the wrong track, you're right, <laughs> okay? Instead, uh, it's not all countries. The other countries that have different rules are doing fine. In fact, here, let me show you just a quick summary of that. Graphic 14 here, Britain is at 19.7, Canada at 19.7. This is middle class incomes, okay? Uh, so this is a slightly different uh, number because it's not the median income, it's the middle class income. Uh, but you see the same exact results. Ireland 16.2, Netherlands 13.9, and the U.S. down at the bottom there since 2000, 0.3%, basically no change at all. So why? Why did this happen? Well, the New York Times study uh, concludes that there was three main reasons. One was educational attainment in the U.S. has risen far more slowly. So if you don't focus on education, well, you don't get good results. Secondly, U.S. companies distribute a smaller share of their bounty to the middle class and poor. So what do they do? They take more dividends, they take more stock options, uh, but they give lower wages to their workers at those companies. And then finally, governments in Canada and Western Europe take more aggressive steps to raise take-home pay of low and middle-income households by redistributing income. So now here in America, oh, that's a terrible thing. You can't redistribute income. But here's some of the ways that they do it. For example, in Sweden, they have universal health care. In Canada, they have universal health care. We were told that that was going to destroy their middle class, except it turns out their middle class actually gets paid more than we do. Right? And their rate of growth is much higher. Same for Sweden. Right? So they were lying to you. Uh, it does not hurt the middle class. It actually helps the middle class. Plus, they get the universal health care. So that's a form of redistribution where society says we're not going to let people die in the streets. What we're going to do is for the corporations that are doing well, for the top brackets that are doing well, well, they're going to share a slightly higher percentage of that so that people don't die in the streets, so that everybody gets health care. Everybody gets uh, subsidized in some countries, including Sweden, child care. So, and what does that create? It creates opportunity so that those people then can go work. They're not bums. They go work and they earn higher wages. It creates opportunity, by the way, also for education. When you say education is going to be subsidized, so if you're poor but your son or your daughter did great in school, well, we're going to give you an opportunity to get into the middle class and even into the rich uh, brackets because we've given you a chance. Whereas here in the U.S., they say, don't redistribute my money. I don't want that poor kid who worked his ass off to get really good grades to have the same opportunity that I had. I don't want him to have that opportunity. Don't redistribute my money. Don't you dare take a higher percentage in taxes. So when you have incredibly low rates for the rich, you have incredibly low rates for corporations, what happens? The rich get richer and the rest of us start falling behind. Final conclusions of the study, the American rich pay lower taxes than the rich in many other places. This is not an accident, it is by design. Our middle class is getting destroyed on purpose so that the rich can have even more money. Now, it's a question of what do you do with taxes? It's not to say that you should take all the taxes, you get 70%, 90% of the money from the top brackets. It's a question of what's sensible for society so that in fact the poor and the middle class go up as the rich also go, how do I know that that can work? It, first of all, it worked here in the U.S. Between 1940 and 1980, we had great prosperity for all of those different classes. Because we had a decent uh, income tax, we had decent corporate taxes, we didn't have the loopholes that we have now, and our government was not gutted by the rich and powerful who bought our politicians. Finally, 
when they say, well, if you do all that, it won't work. Let's go to the example of Sweden. Even with a large welfare state in Sweden, per capita GDP there has grown more quickly than in the United States over almost any extended recent period, a decade, 20 years, 30 years. Take any of those time periods, and Sweden, with their large welfare state, has had their income go up substantially higher than the U.S. as a matter of the increase in their rate. They're lying to you. It's not true that if you rig the, all the rules and the laws in favor of the rich and the multinational corporations that it will trickle down to you. It trickles down on you in terrible ways. Look at the actual numbers. We can be a more just society, we can be a fairer society. But honestly, the first thing you gotta do to fix the system is, if you allow the rich to buy their politicians, well of course they're gonna set the rules to their advantage. We should go back to having a democracy like we had until the Supreme Court decided that corporations and the rich could spend unlimited money on politicians. There is an answer. It's a constitutional amendment. As Justice John Paul Stevens said today, that amendment is necessary. You must go above the head of the Supreme Court. And that's a guy who served on the Supreme Court for 35 years. At Wolfpack, we agree with that. Wolf-pack.com. Get the amendment. Get back our democracy. And then we can regain our middle class and we can regain our status among nations. That we are a just society and a prosperous society. We can do both. Right now, unfortunately, we're not doing either for 99% of us. study shows that the U.S. economy has finally produced more jobs than there were before the Great Recession of 2008. The problem is they're mostly bad jobs in fast food restaurants and low-wage retail. The National Employment Law Project found that there were almost 2 million fewer good-paying jobs than there were back in 2008 but also close to 2 million more jobs in the low-wage sector of the economy, meaning most of the new jobs have been bad jobs. Actually, the change in the jobs picture during the Great Recession was just a speeded-up version of what capitalism has been producing in the United States for more than 30 years. It is by design. Every time employers have turned the screws on labor in terms of wages, benefits, and job security, Wall Street has rewarded those companies. The lords of capital have also richly rewarded the politicians from both parties for removing the remaining obstacles to the direct rule of the rich. 
Capital's global plan is to reduce all workers to a state of absolute insecurity so that they will accept those bad jobs without complaint. That requires the destruction of what we used to call the social safety net, a term that sounds increasingly quaint in the dog-eat-dog environment engineered into the system by Wall Street. Make no mistake about it, austerity is the common program of both the business parties. That's why you will hear no countervailing vision from the Democrats, whose message differs from the Republicans only in tone, not in substance. Both answer to the lords of capital. Barack Obama, the great actor and political chameleon, pretends to commiserate with his democratic minority and working-class constituents. Like his mentor, Bill Clinton, Obama claims to feel their pain. Yet he is feverishly working to pass trade treaties that will further establish the legal structures of the global race to the bottom. Treaties so blatantly biased towards corporations and against every principle of democracy and national sovereignty that the language must be kept secret. However, the main problem for American workers isn't that Wall Street's economic and social plans are secret, because, for the most part, they aren't. Big Capital's intentions have been quite clear for decades. The NAFTA trade treaty has been savaging U.S. factory workers and Mexican peasants for 20 years. The Democrats were in power when the banks were set free to loot and plunder 15 years ago. Every employment study has tracked the steady decline of union membership, which the Democrats have done virtually nothing to reverse. That's quite understandable, since finance capital has steadily increased its campaign contributions to Democrats. None of this has been a secret, and no one should be surprised that, as a result, most new jobs are bad jobs. As far as Wall Street is concerned, that's good news. What makes the current era different from the past is that neither of the business parties even bothers to pretend that it has a plan for a good job society. That means the people must put forward their own plan through their own organizations and learn to avoid the Democrats, whose job is to nip genuine people's movements in the bud so as not to disturb the corporate order. Democrats and Republicans have failed this country for too long. The current system is designed for profit, not human needs. The people must rise up and revolt for human needs. There's something wrong when they say separation of church and state. It's where you in on the Bible to be president or take the stand. And the demand for free health care and education. And jobs for all the pay the bills could be met with the creation of tax and the super rich. Taking some millions from the place, placing the military budget with big cuts would change the nation. They got health care in Europe and Canada. Presently, they don't have as many in jail and they don't have the death penalty. In 60 minutes, they asked Madeline Albright about the plight of 500,000 kids that because the sanctions lost their life in Iraq. So the question of the host was asked. Back. Was it worth it? She said yes. It showed that if you're poor, your life is worth less. It's a perennial media theme. Democrats who veer into economic populist territory, where much of the Democratic Party base dwells, will be dismissed by the media. So when populist Senator Elizabeth Warren took her populist book on tour recently, you heard ABC reporter Jeff Zeleny on this week declaring that the left is looking for a fighter and a fiery populist. 
Then Zeleny gave this bad news. Some moderate Democrats fear her economic populism is a dead end for the party. But to her admirers, she's a political celebrity. So some people think she's trouble for the party, but those who like her say she's a celebrity. Exactly which Warren policies are considered so dangerous? Is it her strong stands on banking regulation and consumer protection? It's hard to imagine issues that could be more popular with the public, and not just Democrats. If Zeleny's critics are saying that Warren's stance towards Wall Street would hurt the party with industry donors, well, there's certainly something to that. A graphic ABC flashes on the screen is from a Wall Street Journal op-ed by two professional Democratic centrists who think the smart move is to start talking about the funding crisis in Social Security and Medicare. A more important question for democracy might be why reporters never argue that center-right Democrats are a dead end for the party. There's a case to be made for that, from the Clinton years to the heavy losses suffered by blue dog moderate Democrats in 2010. But a reporter asking that question would probably be accused of bias. Saying populism is dangerous is just fine, though. Populism, yeah, yeah. Populism, yeah, yeah. Populism, yeah, yeah. Populism, yeah, yeah. This is the angel. This is the angel. This is the angel, Jackson. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, retirement security for all. It didn't used to be a radical idea in this country that citizens could retire with dignity and basic necessities. Most of us spend 50 or so years working, contributing to society, being a cog in that super important economic wheel. Being able to stop working before it becomes physically impossible isn't much to ask. Some might even consider it a human right of sorts. Retirement was for generations described as a three-legged stool, social security, pensions, and personal savings. Well, even us youngsters know that money isn't worth as much as it used to be, which means savings are inadequate to non-existent. Public pensions are under attack across the country. No one stays at one job long enough to have a private pension. And for the past few decades, the GOP has been after social security, which now pays out benefits at below poverty level. The Service Employees International Union, or SEIU, is calling for a return to the basics, retirement security for all. At SEIU.org, you can test your knowledge on the history and current state of retirement funding, share your story, fears, and hopes for retirement, know you're not too young, and sign up for alerts on legislation and social media actions as they pressure Congress members to do their jobs. The SEIU also links to Social Security Works, a great organization that's being proactive rather than using the typical moderate Democrat defensive model of advocacy. You can sign their petition at socialsecurityworks.org to support their already effective work pushing self-described progressive legislators into becoming outspoken advocates for expanding benefits. You can, as always, let your representatives know that retirement is an issue that matters to you. This is particularly effective coming from young people. They'll be shocked you even bothered. The $15,500 annual payout from Social Security would not be enough to live on even if healthcare costs weren't skyrocketing, and they are. This is about us, about our parents, about our grandparents, about basic humanity. Visit the SEIU's Retirement Security page 
and join the fight. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage? The evidence keeps mounting. Just this past Tuesday, the 15th of April, tax day, the AFL-CIO reported that last year, the chief executive officers of 350 top American corporations were paid 331 times more money than the average U.S. worker. Those executives made an average of $11.7 million compared to the average worker who earned $35,239. As that analysis circulated on tax day, the economist Robert Reich reminded us that in addition to getting the largest percent of total national income in nearly a century, many in the 1% are paying a lower federal tax rate than a lot of people in the middle class. You will no doubt remember that an obliging Congress of both parties allows high rollers of finance the privilege of carried interest, a tax rate below that of their secretaries and clerks. And at state and local levels, while the poorest 20% of Americans pay an average tax rate of over 11%, the richest 1% of the country pays half that rate. Now, neither nature nor nature's God drew up our tax codes. That's the work of legislators, politicians. And it's one way they have, as Chief Justice John Roberts might put it, of expressing gratitude to their donors. Oh, Mr. Adelson. We so appreciate your generosity that we cut your estate taxes so you can give $8 billion as a tax-free payment to your heirs, even though down the road the public will have to put up $2.8 billion to compensate for the loss in tax revenues. All of which makes truly repugnant the argument heard so often from courtiers of the rich that inequality doesn't matter. Of course it matters. Inequality is what has turned Washington into a protection racket for the 1%. It buys all those goodies from government, tax breaks, tax havens, allowing corporations and the rich to park their money in a no-tax zone, loopholes, favors like carrying interest, and on and on and on. Listen, there's a big study coming out in the fall from Martin Gillens at Princeton and Benjamin Page at Northwestern based on data collected between 1981 and 2002. Their conclusion, quote, America's claims to being a democratic society are seriously threatened. The preferences of the average American appear to have only a minuscule, near-zero, statistically non-significant impact upon public policy. Sad that it's come to this. The drift toward oligarchy that Thomas Piketty describes in his formidable book has become a mad dash, and it will overrun us and overwhelm us unless we stop it.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. We'll be getting to those in a future episode. If you would like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, I just have a couple of programming notes for you. But first, a bonus segment for you. Late entry has come in from our esteemed guest introducer, Ronald from Baltimore, also sometimes known as John Mill, who has chimed in with a This Day in History segment, which could not be more perfectly timed. Here's the Free Thought Almanac for July 14th. I'm John Mill. It was on this date, July 14th, 1789, in the morning, that French citizens stormed and destroyed the hated Bastille prison in Paris, ending a symbol of the human rights abuses by King Louis XVI, who had in fact supported the American colonists in their quest for independence from Great Britain and beginning the French Revolution. Bastille means bastion or castle, and it was a structure built in the 14th century to defend the eastern approach to the city of Paris from the English threat in the Hundred Years' War. It is known formally as the Bastille Saint-Antoine. Louis XIV used the Bastille as a prison for those who had opposed or angered him, including upper-class members of French society, and, after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, French Protestants, but also to hold those who had differed with him on matters of religion. The destruction of the Bastille marked the end of absolute monarchy in France. Louis XVI was executed by guillotine on the 21st of January, 1793, and signaled the birth of liberty, equality, and fraternity for all French citizens, and, eventually, the creation of the First Republic. The French Revolution achieved popular support among the peasants and nobles, and even a few priests, because of a cruel tyranny under church and state, They kept the populace at 90% illiteracy, oppressed them with taxes, and denied them property ownership, a dangerous income inequality not unlike that increasing in the United States today. To their credit, the leaders of the revolution took no office in the succeeding government after 1791. Still, the new constitution treated the luxuriously and cynically corrupt Catholic Church better than it had treated the people. Of course, the Church claimed religious oppression— because they could no longer oppress the people as they used to. Again, not unlike the whining of churches in the U.S. today. Bastille Day, called simply Le 14 Juillet by natives, remember the 4th of July is what Americans call Independence Day, was declared the French national holiday, La Fête Nationale, on the 6th of July, 1880. It celebrates not only the storming of the Bastille in 1789, commemorated in a painting of that same year by a contemporary, Jean-Pierre Huel, and later by Austrian composer Karl Ditters von Dittersdorf in his Symphony in C Major, and by Charles Dickens in A Tale of Two Cities, but also celebrates the Fête de la Fédération on the 14th of July, 1790. Celebrations of Bastille Day are held all over France to this day. They are, and always have been, secular. This has been the Free Thought Almanac for July 14th. I'm John Mill. Okay, that really is it for today. Just a few programming notes before I go. First of all, sort of a bad news, good news situation. The next episode to come out in a few days, unfortunately, will be another rerun. That's because Netroots Nation is happening. Schedules get crazy at Netroots, and I just can't do a show during that time. The good news is that that'll be the last in this sort of weird, disrupted summer hours schedule, and we'll be getting back to the regular every three days schedule in the coming weeks. So that's the good news. More good news, though, uh, around Netroots in particular, uh, two opportunities to sort of either come and meet me and others or hang out or see what I'm up to. 
Thursday, if you're in Detroit, because that's where Networks Nation is, there is a big listener meetup happening between uh, Young Turks, David Pakman Show, and Best of the Left listeners. That's happening 7 p.m. Thursday, July 17th at the Anchor Bar. It's just a couple of blocks from the convention center where Networks is happening. So if you're in the area, definitely take the time to come down. We'll, you know, we'll be there for several hours, I'm sure. So starting at 7 p.m. on Thursday, come and hang out with, you know, see us and meet a bunch of listeners who also enjoy the shows. Now, for anyone in or out of Detroit, which is everyone, there is a Netroots stage. Uh, there's a, a live show going out on the live program stream that I've been invited to be a part of. I don't know the details. David Pakman got invited to do it. He was allowed to invite whoever he wanted to. So uh, so he invited me and at least Aaron Wysocki from the Young Turks. And I don't know who else might be there. But there will be a live stream program going on. that, I, And you know, I'll be there apparently if, if all things go to plan. And and one clarification on that, when David Beckman was uh, sent me a text message explaining kind of what this thing was, and he said that Aaron, uh, referring to Aaron Wysocki from the Young Turks, said Aaron is in as well. And I read that initially, just a quick glance at the text message, I read that as Aaron is in a well, and I thought, well, that's terrible. I was like, this is baby Jessica all over again. Um, and then I read more closely and I realized he's not in a well at all. So I just want to clarify that for anyone who was uh, concerned, uh, Aaron Wysocki, as far as I know, is not and has never been in a well, although I haven't confirmed that. If he has been in a well, I, this is just outside my scope of knowledge. But as far as I know, he's safe and sound at this moment. So again, to reiterate the important points to take away from today, uh, the next episode will be a rerun. Unfortunately, I'm sorry. After that, it'll be back to new episodes and the regular schedule. Thursday, July 17th, come hang out with Young Turks, David Pakman Show, and Best of the Left and listeners. Thursday, 7 p.m. at the Anchor Bar in Detroit. Then on Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern, watch us on the official Netroots live stream program that can be seen by anyone in the world. I'll be a part of that, and I don't even know what else will be happening, but it should be interesting. And lastly, Aaron Wysocki's not in a well. Those are the important takeaways. So that is going to be it for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your account at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past our sad stories and See you